0: Welcome to Planner Parlay, a show where we come together under a flag of truce to talk about small agency planning. Stratfest went virtual this year, but the buzz was still the same. Planner Parlay joined in on the streaming fun with a cocktail-laden discussion to round out an inspiring day. Sarah McFarland, Director of Strategy at R&R Partners in Las Vegas, and Steve Kazell, Group Strategy Director at OBP in St. Louis, returned to the show to look back over a Stratfest unlike any other. Join them and John Roberts, CSO of Truth Collective in Rochester, New York, as they review the event, dig into lessons learned and what it means for small agency planners. Pull up a chair
1: and listen in.
2: So, welcome to season two, another episode of Planner Parlay. And today's topic is StratFest. We're actually recording this just a couple of days after the first ever virtual Stratfest from the 4As uh, in time of Covid, and I'm thrilled to welcome back last year's guests on the stratfish review so i have sarah mcfarlane director of strategy from r&r partners in vegas welcome sarah and uh, you had a case study that i'd love to touch upon later on so thanks for joining us
0: yeah absolutely thanks john
2: and our other partner from obp in st louis steve kazell so welcome steve back again
1: yeah very excited to be back thanks john
2: so, guys, we'll we, we compare a little bit to what we thought and shared from last year's StratFest when actually we first met. If I remember rightly, it was over probably too many beverages on a Brooklyn tour after one of the evenings in New York City. Yes. yes. <laughs> yeah. But we had a virtual beer last night at the end of uh, the parlay at the end of StratFest 2020. 2020, planning in real time was the theme for this StratFest. Uh, And certainly when it was created as a theme, I don't think anyone imagined it was this kind of in real time, in real life, in our bedrooms, in our front rooms and chatting over Zoom all the time. So let's jump straight in. Sarah, let's start with you. When you think about Stratfest yesterday as a virtual experience of four or five hours, how was it overall for you?
0: Yeah, I mean, per your intro, isn't the uh, topic so prescient? the the time that we were in such a weird world this year, but, um, you know, I was pretty amazed that they, um, you know, pivoted so quickly and, you know, converted everything to virtual, you know, there's always going to be hiccups, just like every client meeting you've been on in the last six months. But, um, all in all, I feel like there were some real silver linings and, um, and some things that we could probably work on next year, but, um, I was excited to be there.
1: Fantastic. Steve. How about you? You know, Strapfest is something that I've you know, i looked forward to every year for the last few years, um, and it might have something to do with an excuse to get to New York. So okay. huh? so uh, this year, not even being able to leave my house. Um, you know, I, I thought it was great content. I appreciated a lot of the conversation. You know, one of the things that I found myself kind of in the middle of is you know, almost a meta-analysis of how I was experiencing the event because, um, you know, our agency is helping to produce virtual events for our clients. I've attended other virtual events in the midst of helping plan a virtual event. And so trying to divorce myself of the like assessment of the event experience itself and really um, listen to the content and absorb it was kind of tough. You know, the other thing that's hard about not being in person is you're so much more inclined to be working (laughs) While listening, um, mm-hmm. and so there was definitely some of that, uh, you know. So I think it's as has been the theme for me personally this year. Um, actually, being able to give my full attention uh, was really hard, and actually being present and um, absorbing it in the way that I think I normally would have last year was difficult for me. But all things considered, uh, I did really enjoy it. I thought they did a great job with the programming this year.
2: Yeah. I hear you. And funny, Sarah, you're absolutely right about, you know, Hanning in real life being so prescient because it wasn't just the fact that we were distant, you know, we couldn't be together. But Steve, your points are absolutely great as well in terms of the in real life, the COVID fatigue. I know that many of us, all of us, are sharing in some way, means it's actually very hard to get that focus of attention uh, and absorption. And I felt that uh, certainly true. I'm looking forward to actually the flip side to not being together is all of the presentations are recorded. Yep. So I'm going to spend a bit more time and go back through them and again pick up some threads. Because you know, I think that was
1: that was an interesting experience for me. John, you just used the yeah. word that it really struck me. I think one of the things that I've personally found so frustrating about this year and even in the context of an event, I think some of this even came through in some of the, the discussions, but. For for our discipline, like a huge piece of what we do is not only focusing ourselves, but focusing our teams and trying yep. to deliver focus to the work. And that's been really hard to do this year. <laughs> yeah. You know, in general, uh, and and even through some of the, the content, I was, you know, applauding certain contributors that they were able to kind of cut through to a core theme and really take even a beat to make sure that everybody kind of knew level set like we're on this together what comes to mind is Mark Pollard starting off his workshop just kind of like with a quick PSA on mental health which I commend him for because it's like you can't just blow right right through the elephant in the room is that like everybody's really having a hard go this year so yeah you said focus and I was like yeah focus is the thing that has like been very hard to attain this year for me personally I hear you and Sarah I know you've uh, experienced a similar things
0: yeah absolutely and i think to steve's point you know along with that focus comes the stripping down right of rethinking everything in the way that we've done it trying to you know get down to what i call a minimum viable product right um what's the simplest cleanest most concise way that we can get to what we need to get to in the midst of all of this and and i heard a lot of content that was really speaking to that which was really really appropriate for me and the work we've been doing in
2: the last six months. Do you know, Sarah, that's a really great way. When I was looking, going back through my notes this morning about you know some of the things we took away, I was lucky enough to be sitting in the same room at least, even though six foot distance from two of my planners, uh, three of my planners in terms of looking at the event on Strapfest uh, and then chatting about it a little bit. But that focus, what, what we all took away were the moments which is actually not necessarily even just one presentation, but the moments where we felt there was a balance between the lofty idealism that we all seek in planning about how can we get better, really closely attached to a very simple, what can I do about it? A tactic, an example, a way to apply it, Uh, was really interesting for us because I think that comes back to what you were saying, Steve, about how do we get this focus so we don't have too much hypothetical thinking and swirl but actually get down to doing things. Do you know what I mean?
1: Yeah. Yeah, after, yeah,
2: for sure.
0: Nobody's got time for that anymore, right? Like um I would love to, you know, just marinate in my thoughts and pontificate on the best approach for every particular project, but you know, as we heard from all of these panelists and all of these presenters, you know, it's getting down to what they say the 45-minute planning period, right? Yeah. From the 6 to 8 weeks we all wish we ever had. Yeah which I'm not even sure that was ever real, but um, but this 45 minutes feels very real.
2: So let's stay on that because that was a theme, uh, a fantastic workshop that sadly I couldn't attend because I was setting up uh, for, for Parley. But Mark Pollard and Julian Cole were doing a 45-minute uh, strategy workshop. Steve, you were there. So were you on that one as well?
0: I was not, although I am very excited about this recorded content that's getting uploaded. Exactly.
2: So. And yeah. also Julian Cole and I are going to be doing another podcast uh, Mark and Julian and I did one last season. So Julian's coming back and I th- I've asked Julian to think about what would be the subject. Does he carry the scene through? So uh, we'll dig in deeper on that. But Steve, why don't you chat a little bit about
1: what you took away from
2: the 45-minute the
1: workshop? Well, I think the thing that I enjoy about um, any time those two do their you know, live strategy, which they've done on Mark's podcast and I think in a few other places, yep. I love it because it's it's this completely vulnerable high wire act and they're not really too concerned with falling, which I think is just refreshing. Um, You know, we as planners and strategists, I think that there's this natural tendency towards coming off as if we know exactly what the right answer is. And we have all the answers and we've you know, everything we're proposing is airtight and airtight. these two guys are very, very open to being wrong. And I think that the creative approach that they take to just kind of riffing and um, soliciting input real time and chewing on stuff and just having fun with it, I think is something that we could all stand to adopt a little bit more. I think we, we just as a discipline have become so accustomed to having every head in the room turn and look at us and expect us to deliver, you know, the the airtight answer to all the problems, um, with full confidence. And obviously that's not always the case. It's something I know we've been trying to get more, um, in the habit of doing it at OBP is uh, more crossover collaboration through all phases of work so that there aren't these moments where I have to have everything ironed out and I hand it over to creative and then creative has to have everything ironed out for creative review. You know, it can be messier and it can be um, a little bit more fun even uh, yeah. if we are just vulnerable and let ourselves kind of like be wrong for a little bit until we find something that feels right. Yeah, it's funny because it reminds me of things I've talked about
2: with people before about, you know, a belief that I don't think strategists are responsible for creating the strategy. I think they're responsible for making sure that there is one, right? So yeah. it isn't us with having the golden words and the sole answer only, but how do we bring people in? And I, I heard that yesterday as well in the, in the parlay. We had a, a cocktail parlay at six o'clock for an hour just sharing thoughts for about 20, 30 people. And a similar thing came through about... Having a partner means that some it is more fun than sitting in your bedroom or you know wherever you happen to be trying to come up with a solution, but also it can lead to better ways. The most important thing, though, is you have to be open. You have to accept the fact, both of you, that you're not necessarily going to have the smartest answer immediately. So be a bit more vulnerable, as you were saying, Steve. So... Any other thoughts from, we jump straight into a workshop because I know it was very topical and Mark and Julian always do a great show on that. Um, I wanna talk a little bit about the presentations in a minute, but so, um, anything else, Steve, that you took away from that, the speed of the 45 minute strategy?
1: Well, I think the other thing, and I was having a little bit of a um, slack conversation in real time with one of my uh, team members, but what I always find fascinating is, you know, they talk about the human problem behind the business problem. It's very Mm -hmm. much a communications barrier, but you know, once they make some assumption and in these sessions, they almost are always making an assumption and they'll be very clear to say, we haven't done any research on this. We're just completely spitballing some potential challenges that we might have. But once they decide on like, this is the communications barrier, this is the human problem behind the business problem. They kind of put the business problem aside and they just focus on finding a way to, Mm -hmm. to, most creatively communicate in in, in a noticeable and memorable way, something that makes the, um, you know, whatever the product is that they're working on mentally available for an audience um, based on some kind of spark that they can see might, you know, might be be a challenge in the way of communicating the value proposition or whatever, or or maybe not even a value proposition. I guess, I just find it refreshing that they, they kind of like, Pick a spot and say, you know what, We're this is all a creative exercise from here on out. Um, and it's all predicated on the assumption that, that this is the thing that stands in the way of the business achieving its goals. And we're going to solve it in a creative communications context. Yeah, got it.
2: So uh, for those of you that listening in that didn't happen to be at Stratfest, it was, uh, there were about four or five uh, presentations back to back. Uh, really great topics uh, and then it devolved into uh, an hour space for choice of one of five workshops and Steve uh, was just talking about the the Mark Parlor, Julian Cole which I know is a, a keen favorite of many people when we think about the presentations what stu- stuck out for you Sarah
0: I think one of the differences from last year that I really noticed was the the shift to presentations rather than more kind of collaborative or hmm. or live crowd in you know involved um type of engagement, which I really missed. I think that's one of the things that I really love about Stratfest is kind of the hands-on nature of the entire thing, start yeah. to finish. Yeah. Um, but that being said, I, you know, I think there was some really great content out there. Um I know some of the, the folks um on the back end were talking about you know, kind of missing that, that they wanted to get a little bit deeper into the content that that folks had presented and um, they just weren't able to do that. Did you guys find that was kind of a limitation this year?
2: I definitely felt that from, you know, there were two or three presentations and there's always the same, right, in any format, where there's gonna be a couple of presentations that really, really speak to you. There's gonna be a couple so-so and there's be a couple that, you know, don't quite connect with you for whatever reason. Um, but good breath and yeah we, um, that was certainly how I felt and it uh, came through in the parlay discussion as well of we kind of just got started on a couple of presentations mm-hmm. in particular okay I know the one of uh, certainly for the, the people that were on planet parlay last night their favorite was the uh, overcoming bias in the brief which of course is so topical yeah um, right now and I think some of that I'll just stay on that presentation for the moment the overcoming bias in the brief the format allowed um, a much richer conversation because it effectively it was a moderated uh, panel by Yusuf Chukwu. So we had three or four people, all with different perspectives about how to overcome what is bias in the brief first, uh, what are the, the, the common mistakes we're still making and, and what what are things that we can do to overcome it?
1: You know, it, this is another thing I've been thinking a lot about in the context of virtual events and virtual conferences specifically. Yes. Yeah. When, when you're at a in-person conference, your attention is defaulted to the person on the stage. Yep. Um, I think the burden of a speaker in a virtual event, it, it, like it, it is so much harder to keep an audience engaged when they're watching on their computer or, or their phone at home, you know? It yep. goes back to the whole focus thing. But the panel, I feel like the panel is a format has become even more valuable in my mind because it, you know, it's unscripted, you know, that these yep. points are not rehearsed. It's a dynamic uh, conversation and discussion. And, and honestly, the more tension that is in the conversation, the more disagreement that's happening, the more I'm instinctively tuning in. Uh, and that's a tension that I think is really hard to manufacture in a talk, in a virtual event, but I think it's made me fall in love with the panel format even more if you have the right mix of people on the right topic.
2: I think both things are true, Steve. It's it's a really great way you're thinking about it, which is the panel format um, allowing us to have a little bit more of, you're not sure what's coming next. And we all zone out, let's be honest, okay? We're we're, we're our own worst uh, enemy when we zone out in any form of presentation. Um, So that keeps us on our toes. But the second thing I think you're absolutely right as well, of choosing panelists who may not necessarily be feeling as though we're all scripted and agreeing with each other. It's nothing as juicy as a, you know, as a as a friendly disagreement, because then it can allow you to actually think harder. You know what right. I
1: mean? Yeah, and the nice thing about this virtual format is that your audience has the opportunity um, to to be adding their input in real time via chat or whatever the case may be. Whether it actually gets surfaced as a question to the panel, maybe, maybe not. But you know, I saw at least a few times some side conversations just happening in the chat. Um, yeah. So that's kind of a bonus that it. the nature of the panel format is a discussion and it engenders more discussion and more contribution.
2: Yeah, it's great. And it's funny, you know, just a simple look back on on Stratford, same as any event. When you look at where were, where was the flow of notes that you were scribbling down? And that obviously tends to be the focal point. And for me, that was certainly, um, that was probably my favorite session yesterday. One is because, of course, it's so topical right now as we're all, make ensuring that we can do more as strategists. how do we better represent our true audience and really what's going on in culture today but the other thing is i think there were some some great discussions that led to really simple uh examples about what we could do you know i i took down and i was chatting last night with a few other planners one of the presents was talking about assumption storming so much like brainstorming yeah you begin okay but begin with a set of assumptions before you even get into writing the brief. What's our assumption? And in this case, they were focusing on our audience. Uh, and I loved it because it was, I, you know, Mike, in fact, the, the parlay last night was saying it, and I completely agreed with him. It's one of those moments when you sit there and you go, oh, I'm an idiot. Why haven't I done this before? <laughs> so it's on my list of things now. Starting now, I'm doing it. Sarah, you were nodding in agreement. Yes, anyway,
0: you? yes. You know, I think. I agree that the panel discussion was kind of the shining star of the, of the show yesterday for me, for all of those reasons, but, you know, kept us more engaged, you know, we were able to kind of chat with each other, which again, I think kind of reinforced that keeping us engaged that we were, you know, kind of talking amongst ourselves and then also feeding them questions. So it was, I think the most interactive of all of the experiences yesterday. But also such an important topic. We were, you know, literally talking about things you can do, which for me is, you know, one of the highlights of Stratfest is it's very tactical and hands-on and, and learning, um, which was really great. But but also just some like really amazing little nuggets that came out of there, um, you know, about the assumption storming and the role of data, and then also kind of just reinforce that larger theme that I heard throughout the day about basically our industries responsibility when it comes to shaping culture and and some of the narrative and maybe even um, some of the harm we've done over the years in reinforcing some of these um, you know systemic inequities and and what is our role in in fixing that moving forward
2: yeah talk a little bit more so about the uh, the data point you're just referring to
0: yeah, I mean, one of my, I, you know, just come from my notes, one of my favorite notes on that was, you know, data is history and history is always biased. Right. Just thinking about that. <laughs> yeah. um, I've been rolling that around in my head for the last 24 hours and I um, I love it. I'm a data nerd. Right. I'm a, My background's in research, so um, I'm always knee deep in the data. But thinking about it from that perspective, you know, I always kind of found safety in numbers, like, you know, numbers are clean numbers are, you know. You yep. can obviously bias with numbers. It's very easily done, but um, but just putting that lens on it as I'm moving forward in the work, I think um, is really important. I loved that.
1: There was one point, um, and i I don't remember who made the comment, but uh, somebody said, Your customer of today is not your customer of tomorrow or something to that effect and it was was, i think in reference to there's a lot of discussion around household income as a as a data point within demographic analysis and i i think at least how i interpreted the the meaning of the comment was that you may have um someone who is not financially in a position to be your customer today, but that doesn't mean that they may not be at some point. And it's a conversation that, you know, I've been trying to have with with some of our clients when they they focus so much on this notion of who they think their customer today is, what they look like, how much they make, where they live, all of these things. And they they narrow in on reinforcing that perception in their communications. And I don't think it's necessarily a an intentional, um, yeah you know, boundary that they put on it, but they think, uh, you know, I want my customer to see themselves in their communication. But I do think that we, especially as um, folks with an agency that help our clients make these decisions, we have an opportunity to help shape the perception of what a customer of any given brand could look like, could be, you know, and give them the opportunity, the runway to like grow into, you know, the status as maybe a customer of a luxury brand or being able to you know afford an investment in their, in their lives, uh, even go into a career that is not necessarily super diverse. So depiction of diversity in positions that don't actually have a lot of diversity today as a mechanism to try and reshape that perception. So I found that aspect mm-hmm. of it really interesting. How can we continue to remind our clients that the customer that they have today doesn't have to be or maybe isn't going to be the customer of tomorrow?
2: Yeah, I agree, Steve. And I think thinking about, you know, looking at my notes from that, the bias in the brief discussion, there's also the this this challenge for us all, which is about exactly what you're saying. The customer of today isn't necessarily the customer of tomorrow, but I'm also not convinced that we even really identify who the customer of today genuinely is. Sure. You know, all of our white implicit bias in the discussions that I know every agency is having about how can we better reflect a more diverse audience. Um, I sat in on, in fact, when you when you were doing the uh, Pollard and Cole, I, I, I joined Marina Filippelli from Orki, uh, her presentation on the, the workshop on the new majority. And that was, again, a great reminder for me, a simple, really salient reminder, okay, data points, uh, okay. So 38% of, uh, of uh, the U.S. today is technically minority. As soon as we start talking about minority, it shifts our uh, mental focus somewhere else you know we've all got clients where we talk about general market and what the general market what they really mean is white which is wrong okay so having a different way of actually thinking about breaking down the audience but also the different mindset of how we approach it uh it's really important for us and a truth and we're we're putting in place now more ways to learn more ways to challenge ourselves as well are you guys seeing that are you uh, in your agencies in terms of thinking about Overcoming bias in your briefs?
0: Yeah. You know, I think to Steve's point earlier uh, about your customer today versus tomorrow, you know, one of the stats that came out of that same uh, discussion was that 48% of Gen Zs, right, are not white. Right. Right. Um, So, to some extent, if you're, you know, I, I know we're trying to make that hard shift from like hyper millennial focus to Gen Z which in my mind, Gen Z is a lot more interesting. So I'd rather play in that space, but, um, Gen Z, uh, right. Is already there. They're already, um, in that space. And so if we're thinking about even our customer of like next year, not even, you know, too far out, you know, that's where we should already be playing. And I think one of my favorite quotes from that, essentially that your multicultural strategy is your strategy, right? If you're looking at any of these populations. Um, or, or, these products that are fit to say a younger group or, um, you know, any of the, if you're thinking general market, right. Which I have banned use of that term at my, excellent at my office, right. If you mean white people just say white people. Right. But I think, you know, that, that was, I think a really frank and honest discussion, which was, uh, you know, really interesting that, you know, in this year of breaking all of the ways we think about everything, let's break that too. Um, And just start rebuilding the way that we think about it.
2: Yeah. Steve, this isn't about reflecting greater diversity in the execution, the outcome of the work, but ensuring that we reflect in greater diversity of of thinking and understanding in the brief that leads to the work.
1: Yeah, I mean... (sighs) So, I know to your point, John, the discussion was not necessarily around diversity and execution, although I do think that that's still important. And it's certainly something that we as an agency have already started looking at. Um, you know, we work in agriculture and we work in tourism. And yeah. oftentimes, those audiences, uh, depending on where the destination is, are. Deemed to be predominantly white, and I think that's something that we've been intentionally trying to challenge in our casting, even as recently as the last couple months. So, um, I think that's something that we felt pretty strongly that we could work with our clients to push a difference in, you know, how what the identity of of the the audience and the customer is, and. It, you know in reflection the identity of the brand i will say just going back to the kind of the targeting and segmentation thing one of the things that i think and this may have come up actually i don't recall um but rethinking just demographic assessment in general and starting to think more about category entry points and thinking about um reaching anybody who could potentially be in market to buy and and what is that that tipping point that that puts them in market um, to evaluate and starting to target more around those things, whether it be search or or whatever, that are are more geared towards the audience, you know, taking some sort of action or changing their perception around making purchase or, you know, Mm -hmm. for those of us that work with clients who don't necessarily sell a product, uh, considering an idea, adopting an idea, supporting an idea, whatever the case may be, but um, not starting from this place of, what are all of the attributes and characteristics we can use to define our target audience, but instead say, what is the need state that we can identify that we can start to target against that is the moment when people actually are starting to think about it or consider it or, you know, are aware of the problem, whatever the case may be.
2: It's a cool way of thinking about, Steve, because if you start from, with your point, if you start from identifying an audience by a need state or mindset, then you don't start by the fault of demography. Because as soon as we start to get into the data of demography of what percentage of our audience is X, we're starting to make exclusionary choices, right? Whereas I love what you're doing is you're flipping it and talking about is about the mindset or about the, the need where people are on the journey. Is that is that tracking with you?
1: Yeah, 100%. And that, you know, folks in media will be the first to say that's harder to do. Yep. Um, And it is, but I don't think that that is a good enough reason to not try. I actually think that there's a lot of evidence out there that it can be some of the most effective ways to go about recency planning and just finding ways to strike while the iron's hot, so to speak. But the the nice benefit of that is you're not starting with a predefined idea of, who someone has to be in order to, to buy a product. Instead, it's what are they looking for? Um, what are they in, in need of? Um, mm-hmm. And letting them kind of initiate the, the brand relationship in that context.
0: Cool. Yeah, I, I would say we're seeing the same thing. And, and to Steve's point, it's, you know, not only is it more effective to be talking about these like behavioral targeting Um, But also, as the data privacy laws are changing, and you know some of those practices and the amount of data, even demographic data that's available to us, is is being kind of pulled back. Those behavioral um, targets are going to be more and more critical in the future.
1: It's funny, you know. I I don't know if if any of you had a chance to um, check out Sarah Davanzo's workshop, but just reflecting on the talk that she had and I, I she was a speaker i think it was last year as well That's mm-hmm. um you know she's obviously very f- futurist in her um themes and topics and like if i'm being completely honest she kind of loses me a lot of <laughs> times um but you know i think what is interesting is a lot of the things that she discusses are inevitabilities in terms of like these are all advancements in technology that people are going to pursue. Yep. Um, where they net out, the future will tell. But I think as for those of us who are in a position to make use of them for good or for evil, uh, I think one of the things that I've started to consider more and more is, and I think she was kind of getting at this with the, trying to weave insight into technology you know, there's certainly going to be more opportunities for us to learn more about the people whose, whose behavior we want to influence. Um, and, you know, I think to Sarah's point, like data privacy is going to probably run parallel to technological advancements in a way that is going to constantly create tension in terms of how much data marketers can actually access the target individuals. It makes me go back to just old school advertising to say like if you can find one thing that just feels inherently true about humanity and it doesn't even have to be a specific set of humans it could just be a shared human experience and you can turn that into a really compelling creative communication and get it out in front of as many people as possible you're gonna do okay you know what i mean like yeah Mm -hmm. that is the the foundation of what has made advertising what it is for the last you know, however many decades at this point. So I I sense that there's going to be a moment in time where we have to come together as, as a marketing industry and say like, do we really need all this data or can we actually get back to being as creative as we claim to be and make people pay attention to us because they want to, not because we found a way to be precisely interruptive, you know what I mean? I love I
0: it. You know,
2: and uh so Sarah as the data geek among the three of us, how do you feel about that?
0: No, I love it. And you know, one of the themes well, I guess two of the themes that I heard yesterday that that I was kind of, you know, interweaving in the way I was thinking about the content yesterday was, you know, this idea of, you know, Percera, the automation, the technology. You know, mm-hmm. Zara Zara Winston also talked about that in terms of like um automating some of those processes because we have less and less time and um but on the other side we also heard a lot more about being a lot more empathetic a lot more tied into the humanity um you know coming back to those planning roots um and in my mind I think they mesh very beautifully but it's going to be something that's hard for people to grapple with at first right that we need to marry these two ideas of tech and automation and like deep empathy for our consumers and, and for the, the audiences that we're speaking to. Um, but in my mind, that's beautiful, I love it.
2: Excellent, and it's funny, um, Steve, you, you touched upon, Sarah's got this great, and it comes back to me, I think about one of the, the challenges of a virtual event, we talked about at the beginning. Sarah's got an amazing perspective of the future. And actually what I found uh, happened was the presentation could establish this high perspective but the workshop from what i heard is it where it really became more real okay of how do you actually do that how do you think about you know she was promoting in the year 2030 the the uh the best job in the world would be to be an insight scientist which is a really interesting uh-huh. compound right to be an insight and scientist but she was saying you know really simple task right be in the noise make sure that everyone you spend some time even if it's just for 30 minutes a day, being in the noise to distinguish between the noise and the novel. And for her, that was about using social media listening tools, using other scientific tools to gather data, to just go and explore a little. You're not necessarily looking for anything. And I thought that was really interesting.
1: Yeah, it's a challenge. As somebody who spent a lot of time, I, I mean, I was literally doing social listening reports during Stratfest, <laughs> <Yeah, like, laughs> there's a lot of noise, and mm-hmm. you know, even just in general, I think the amount of time that gets allotted to research nowadays um, is is so minuscule in comparison to what it should be that we often don't have the luxury of just pure discovery. We kind of have to go in with some hypothesis we're trying to validate, just for the sake of time, if nothing else. But I found myself more and more enamored and um, in admiration of some of the boutique research, uh, firms that are out there. A couple that I follow, uh, on LinkedIn, are nonfiction and further yeah. and further. Um, they just do the coolest like in-depth research, uh, in a way that I, I, I wish we had more time to do as an agency. Um, in, in, the beautiful thing about carving that out is your core service offering is nobody's, you know, you don't have any team members waiting for you to finish so that they can start making stuff, you know. You just, it's just a chance to learn and understand. And one of the things that I, I feel like they've tapped into is the lost art of spending time with people and observing them and like doing those ethnographic types of studies. Um, data is going to tell us a lot of things that people can't or won't, right? Um, Behavioral data, especially, can be a lot more true than people's words. Yep. People lie. People lie to themselves. People sometimes make decisions and rationalize them later. In fact, a lot of times. But the ability to actually watch someone live in their environment, behave without stimulus or without like, you know, uh, experimental stimulus Mm -hmm. and just understand them better uh, man, I think if, if we had more time to do that on more projects, we could unlock way more creative opportunity for our clients because we could tell them things that they don't even know. Like truly things they don't even know, rather than just saying, you know, we analyze the social conversation about your category and the most common word was new, you know? <laughs> yeah. I hear you. And it's it's gotta be a it's gotta be a blend. Gunny is Gunny Scarfer from
2: nonfiction is probably the was the most engaging smart research research and debriefer that I've that I've uh, had the pleasure to spend some time with he was uh he actually was on a, a pod last season I'm, I'm, I'm going to do something more with him again because I love learning from Ghani but you're right that that scrappy research that we've talked about in the past we have to make sure we still maintain a way of finding you know time to do that
0: yeah I think that's been for us one of the um the biggest losses in terms of, of one of our tools in the strategy toolbox during COVID has been this, you know, not being able to just go out in the field and just, yeah. we call them immersion trips, um, yep. right? Or just just immersion experiences. I think someone on um, the panel called them culture treks. Um, but I think that, that disconnect from the actual humans and the situations that they exist in um, has been tough. So, you know, finding those, non-fictions those further and furthers those for me canvas eight has been really useful um you know yep. just kind of getting those deeper um almost academic view but you got to marry it with some of the other behavioral data and and what you're seeing um honestly online which is where everyone lives now so
1: yeah it's a good point and i think one of the things that i would call out as a silver lining is um people in general are more and more accustomed to being on a video call now than ever Mm -hmm. um which can give a little bit of dimension to what would have typically been a phone interview in the past. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's certainly a lot easier to record. So e- even, you know, doing virtual focus groups, not that I really love focus groups in general, but, um, even just one on one in depth interviews via Zoom, I think is something that is going to get easier and easier to do and find people that are willing to do, especially with, with more niche audiences where, you know, people are busy, they don't have time. But the other thing that I think could be a, a cool manifestation is the more that people get accustomed to documenting their lives whether it be instagram snapchat TikTok, whatever the case the more i think we'll be able to leverage that that uh pre-existing behavior in things like video diaries things like um kind of virtual ethnographies obviously it's still going to be people showing us what they want to show us but yeah if we can prompt them to just kind of say hey you know just like you would do this on social media we want you to just track your life for the next three days and yeah it's not the same as being there but um, I think just getting a little bit more to use your word John scrappy about getting that stuff uh, underway early in a, in a project getting a client to put us in touch with a few people um and starting there i think is the the best thing we can do to to counterbalance this notion of you know analyze the the data set and tell us what you found um actually analyzing people i think is really valuable
2: steve it seems you sparked now the 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 segue for me which is The whole notion that everything we're talking about now, the scrappy research, the how do we do it? How do we overcome the challenges of, you know, being stuck on Zoom for the last six months? We're all seem to be leaning towards. And so you talked about this from yesterday's Stratfest as well. The themes of how do we add more humanity and an understanding about the reality of people? Which is interesting for me because the last couple of Stratfests, the pendulum swing. Okay, the last few us were about the age of data and the empowerment of science, um, and right. the empowered consumer and where that leads us. And now I'm seeing in more and more and more threads, which is yes, that's absolutely true, but it is too it almost swung too far to one side. Okay, the science side, and now we need to bring back more of that soul. Okay, the scrappy research, the juice about what's something that genuinely motivates. As you were talking about earlier, mm-hmm. Steve, motivations of real people. Um. And I, I took some of that from, from Stratfest yesterday, and it <laughs> reminds me, actually, some of the conversations we we're having about Stratfest last year, the theme of the, uh, the empowered consumer. And I was looking at my notes again today, and there were a couple that really stuck out for me, because I think they're truer than ever. Okay, so last year, one of the keynotes was Rishad Tabakawala, who is a font of inspiration. I've been lucky to spend a bit of time with him on podcasts and parlay since. Alicia talked about how change sucks, but irrelevance is worse. Right. Last October, September, okay, a 100 years ago when we had this thing <laughs> that we all thought was the old normal, which was the normal.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, and I think that's truer than ever now, okay, of course, okay. Change sucks, but irrelevance is worse. With this significant change we're going through, we have to find a way for planners to be more relevant. Does that track?
1: Oh, yeah, for sure. And I think, you know, I get the sense that a lot of planners in this season of COVID and, you know, early on, it was like all the trend reports all the time. It it seemed like our discipline immediately became valuable in the sense that we were thought to be the ones who had the best finger on the pulse of what was happening next and what are consumers thinking now and et cetera, et cetera. I feel like... I got the sense that people got pretty fatigued pretty fast because, Mm. you know, things were changing week to week, month to month. And I feel like at a certain point, whether it was the client or the agency, but somebody kind of said like, yeah, maybe we maybe we just need to assume that we're not going to (laughs) know what the future holds for a little while Mm -hmm. and make the best decisions we can in that reality. Uh, Versus trying to just stay ahead of the curve on the latest, you know, data that's coming in, you know, the the latest survey that's been in market on consumer opinion. I just, I I felt like I watched people get really tired of trying to keep up. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. And I, I would just add to that, maybe even backing up a few years, I think that we've been kind of skirting around the edges, but we really did know that there was a, a gap in terms of what we would be able to uncover with our new tools with our new efficiency you know metrics and and our new practices and and getting in there and uh you know implementing all this like all the technology pieces that are now available to us i think we knew there was a humanity gap there and that um that that we were missing something um i didn't I don't think we knew how big it was until yeah. this year. Right. Yeah. Um, and just how far off we could be. But I think, you know, now we're seeing how critical that is to marry that, that humanity and that empathy and that, um, you know, real insight with all of the information that we have available.
1: Yeah. And I, am probably hammering home the same point, And this is kind of a theme, I guess, that emerged for me unintentionally, but even just seeing recently how much clients, whether existing or perspective, react to seeing a, a, a verbatim pull quote from a customer or a potential customer. Mm-hmm. It, and it's funny because I feel like a few years ago, you could have thrown that out and they might have said, well, you know, small sample size. Mm-hmm. But but now I feel like they, it jumps off the, the screen more than a statistic. Um, I feel like there's to answer your question John an opportunity for us to really show a client the humanity that exists in their customer base or their prospective customer base in a way that they aren't accustomed to seeing and hearing about on a day-to-day basis sure maybe they they hear communication come from you know uh the field from locations people who deal face to face with customers but I don't know. Like, I do think that might be something that we can continue to mine uh, our value in is to building a point of view that's vocalized in the actual words of the audience. And then wrap a solution around that. That hopefully, if we're doing our jobs right, might actually branch into three of the other Ps and not just the promotion one, um, yeah. to where we can actually tell them something about what people think about their product, or that it's hard to buy, or you know, um, that it's too expensive, or whatever the case may be. Um, I know consumer insights is is still very much a buzzy, trendy thing, but the nature of what that looks like might might be able to shift a little bit.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know, honestly, guys, this is. This is one of the reasons why I love doing parlay and podcasts like this because you've got both of you have got my head whirring now about. So, you're just talking about the humanity. And if nothing else, if nothing else, if for the next few months, six months or future, but let me just focus on the next couple of months, if I find a way as a planner to ensure that there's genuine humanity in coming into informing the grief. Okay, that's going to help me really think about how do I bring some of that bias, you know, overcome some of that bias in the brief to better represent real people. And Steve, your point about clients responding to a pull quote, I'm, I'm with you on it. Some, of it. some of it is just the reality, like we were talking actually before we started this, of our clients are in their bedrooms as well. In fact, I believe most clients are probably not even coming back to any form of office shared environment. That's something right. that we've heard for the next three months minimum, right? Yep. Mm-hmm. So actually, adding in, our role is to bring real people in to inform the brief, but real people in front of client, be it videography. Okay, I use a fantastic, low-key, online um, video qual method, which allows me to get really fast clips of uh, people's answers, responses, all video response to a qual, a bit like a focus group, like you were saying earlier, Steve. But it brings in real people in real words. We all lean into it. We'll go. I'm seeing real people. I'm connecting in some manner with real people. That's a big, big chart task. I think for me, for the next few months as a planner, to make sure I push harder on on my role of doing that. That's great. Oh, I can't believe the time's flying already. And I would, I did say I wanted, I wanted to get the other aspect of Stratfest. Okay, the form of three, four hours of presentations. Uh, varying degrees of success, as we've all said, not because the content is uninter- uninteresting, but I think, Steve, your point of, of the, um, the struggle we all have with fatigue of screen time and presenting. Uh, mm-hmm. Workshops, where definitely we've definitely put up some real-life examples on that. But then there also there's some, some recorded case studies. And Sarah, I wanted just for you to share a little bit, because you, you shared one of the work you and your team have been doing for uh, your local DV course. Why don't you talk about that for a couple of minutes?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so Molly reached out, um, this year, they weren't doing the Jay Shiat awards, um, for a lot of reasons, right. And uh, very logistically difficult, but, um, so they had a handful of folks doing, you know, pre-recorded case studies for, um, for people to consume kind of on demand and, um, It was a really cool experience, it was really fun. I was really excited to highlight some of the work that we've done for Chrysalis, which is a Phoenix-based domestic violence shelter. Mm -hmm. And some of the challenges that those folks have been going through, um, you know, through COVID. This, um, the stay-at-home orders um, were terrifying for folks who are in these types of situations because now they're ordered physically to stay home in their um, environment under the eye of their abuser, potentially. Um, limited access to, you know, the the ways that they might be able to get help or from their support networks, their friends and family. So um, it was it was really great to be able to talk about that work, um, which is really meaningful.
2: Mm. I'm looking forward to digging in because I know the four A's are going to be sharing more and more of the, the case studies, both the recordings from the workshops, but also those case studies. So that'd be really good to learn from.
0: Yeah. And I do I have to say that format, I think, has been one of the um, silver linings of the the virtual Strat Fest is that, you know, you had to pick and choose in the live event. And yes, I'd rather be there in person. I'd rather be drinking beers with you guys in Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. But um it is great to have access to all that recorded content. So hopefully, you know, um I hope that moving forward they do keep that aspect of it. Maybe that they, you know, have that all of that content available after the fact so that we can go home and dig back in and you know maybe do some of the workshops we didn't do. Um, I'm really excited about the workshop piece because that's always been my favorite part of StratFest It's the, you know, kind of hands on workshop. So yep. um, I'm excited to be able to go back and do all of them if I if I can find the time or the space.
2: <laughs> Excellent. So when you think of uh, the, the uh, afternoon and early evening we had yesterday at StratFest. So what would be the one thing you've taken away that you think this is what I'm going to do to make my agency better as a planner?
0: Yeah. I mean, I, as always with Stratfest, I picked up a lot of notes. I think the assumption storming, right. Was the
2: yeah.
0: really the star of the, the day assumption storming. Why haven't we been doing this? I, I always love hearing from Twitter. Cause I feel like those themes that they pull forward are really uh-huh. um, juicy. Right. Um, just at that highest level to think about like where the, uh, you know, the emotion and the conversation of the nation is, or even the, the world. So those are some really um, strong pieces, and then I, you know, I have, I do have pages and pages of notes, which I guess <laughs> was maybe the uh, the upside of being able to watch at home too, is you can spend a little more time, you can pause, you can rewind, you know. Um, yeah. So there was that as well.
2: Excellent. So as ever, brilliant response from a strategist to a workshop question of one thing, and you've given me three as <laughs> well. <so.
1: laughs> How about you, Steve? Uh, you know. I just going back to my earlier point like this experience has been one of a few that has kind of shaped um my perspective on what i what i think is most compelling in terms of uh event content for our industry um and so that's born out of both the things I liked about Stratfest this year and the things that maybe I didn't like as much. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, you made the point earlier, John. It's it's really just down to like which topics land with you and which don't. But I, I think for me right now, th- this year having the backdrop of COVID, and Black Lives Matter, wildfires, inland hurricanes. You know, yeah. we're gonna have an election coming up here. I find myself increasingly responding to anything that is asking of my atten- attention with one of two things either tell me how to make it easier to do my job well mm-hmm. or tell me how to make the world better <laughs> you know <Yeah>. mm-hmm. <laughs> anything in between i just don't have time for right now um and i so d- just you know, additional plug for Sarah's case study. It was encouraging to see an opportunity where you know you can work with a client organization that's actually helping to make the world better and and help them adjust in real time to the circumstances that arose this year. And so um, I, I find myself increasingly thinking about clients in one of two categories where it's like either let's take advantage of this opportunity to do some good, make the world a better place. Add some value, not just to shareholders, but to broader stakeholders in a societal context. Or let's stay the course. We had a great plan. It's still going to work. There are still you know, a lot of people out there who don't want to hear another piece of communication about how things are crazy this year and instead want to be entertained or have something nostalgic or surreal, help them escape for a moment. And we can still deliver on that, right? So I think that's where my head is going is to say – either find a way to plug into those aspirational things that I think a lot of planners have in their hearts, which gives rise to things like brand purpose and you know focus on TSR, which are all well and good, but there's also an opportunity to stick to what has always made advertising work well, and that's like being a delight in people's lives when it's done well and, and actually giving them a moment of respite from reality, um, something to laugh at. You know, people talk about emotional advertising and I feel like they get hung up on emotion being like making people cry. But okay. we can make we can make people laugh and sometimes making them laugh is the best way to get them to remember what we're trying to communicate. So I guess that's where I diverge is like I'm like triaging things as either we're actively trying to solve social problems or we're just getting back to basics and stay in the course and not letting ourselves get distracted.
2: Be choiceful, okay? We talk with our clients about, you know, it's, it's yes, every brand should have a purpose, but the most important thing now is being purposeful, actually standing up for something
1: and doing it in the the right manner. Well, right, and if this year you're a brand that was grasping at straws, that it's, it's as good a time as any to think about whether you actually have a purpose or whether you hired an agency to give you one. Yeah. Um, because this would have been the year to draw on that and actually move to action based on it. Um, and if you weren't really sure what to do, that probably means that, you know, you didn't have one in the first place and there's a lot of debate as to whether or not you need it, but yeah, like, <laughs> I I don't know, maybe, maybe Stratfest, um, specifically in this year generally has kind of made me think either either you're going to set out to do some good with the work or you're just going to do good work. But anything in between is kind of wasting my time.
0: Mm-hmm. Hey,
2: clarity is good. And uh, yeah, echo Steve's point, sir. That that case study is fantastic. What you guys did is is not just great work, but also had such great effect as well. So kudos to you and the, the team there. Well, I'm up my hour, guys. And as ever, it's flown past. And um, next fest. Fingers crossed. We'll have too many beverages in Brooklyn or somewhere. Yeah. But uh, I'd, I'd love to uh, catch up with your games. But I've, I've been thrilled just connecting with you for the last hour. And like I said, I love it because uh, I learn so much. I get enthused, but I learn so much from uh, great planners like yourself. So thank you. Keep it up. Oh, thank you.
0: It's been really it's, fun.
2: Great to talk to. You.
0: Planner Parlay, a Truth Collective production.